And so, Father, we do. We come to meet with you uh, through the word that you have given us by way of the spirit that is in us and empowers us and fills us, guarantees uh, that what has been promised will come to pass. Um, but we, we gather not, not just for these next few minutes uh, to be uh, moved on from, but for equipping purposes, um, uh, for purposes that uh, will, will serve us well, uh, not only in our personal Christ-likeness, but also in, um, in the, just the furtherance in our desire, our craving, uh, the reminder of sharing what we know with others. And so we pray that you would... Uh, Use this time to encourage and strengthen, but also uh, uh, to move us forward so that we would be the change agents, the missionaries, the ministers of the gospel that you've called us to be. And, and as we get into your word now, uh, I pray this would be sweet time. Use me in spite of me. I'm a man most fallible, and so I need much help. So I pray that you'd give me much grace. Fill my mouth with your words. Anything that is not of you, I pray, falls to the ground, and everything that is from you would go to hearts and minds that are receptive of it. And I pray for these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Um, let me get the outline out of the way right from the beginning. All right. So if you like taking notes, three affirmations. Here are three affirmations that Paul gives of the gospel that I will share with you coming out of the 10 verses. Galatians 2, by the way, is where we are. Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. The three affirmations of the gospel that Paul will give, as we will see in our text, number one is that the gospel stands on its own. That's the first. The second is, all obstacles in the way of the gospel need to be removed. So that's the second affirmation. We're going to see this. And then the third is, the gospel makes a difference. Okay? Those are the three affirmations out of the way. Again, if you like taking notes, we'll double back, hit them one at a time. But before we do that, I find it necessary going into this text especially to give a little background on Paul, the timeline of Paul's life leading into Galatians 2 verse 1. I think it's just really important that we have a little bit of context. So let me do this rather quickly. I'll skate over some things, but I think this is just really important. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of Paul's life. When did, when did Paul, when is it suggested that Paul was born? Well, biblical historians suggest that Paul was born somewhere around 2 to 5 A.D., so around there, we don't know for sure, obviously, but around that period of time, what we do know and was customary at that time is that boys, Jewish boys who had a drive and an acumen would sit under the teaching of a, of a qualified rabbi. This would happen usually around the age of 10 and would last for five years. Paul, we know, sat under a rabbi named Gamaliel. If Gamaliel was a university, he would be Harvard. Okay? He would be Harvard, MIT, he would be Cap College. He would be the best of the best, right? That's how I make inroads with where I'm speaking. I say something nice about their universities. So he would be that. Gamaliel would be that. He sat under him, but usually with a five-year period, Paul did from about the age of 10 to 15, like I said, if we understand the customs of the day. What did he do for the next 15 or so years? We don't really know other than he rose in the ranks of the Jewish culture, specifically the religious, the Jewish religious system of the day. Paul describes himself in places like Philippians 3 as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the best of the best. He was a militant defender of Judaism, so much so when this small sect, this uprising, this insurgence 
called The Way began, began making inroads, Paul dedicated himself to destroying it. The Way, as we know, a reference to the early iteration of, of Christianity, the Christian church that birthed in Acts chapter 2. So dedicated, as we know, culminating with this event that takes place in Acts chapter 7, leading to Acts chapter 8, where he goes to the church in Jerusalem, <coughs> excuse me, church in Jerusalem, persecutes it, which has this crescendo moment of, of a, man named, uh, a man named Stephen being martyred. As a result, the church scattered, which was a good thing. Because as we know, Jesus said to the apostles that the gospel begins in Jerusalem, but it's to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They hadn't done that. So God said, watch this, I'll do it. The church scatters as a result of this persecution. And one of the places it scattered to was a, a city called Damascus. So Paul, remember, dedicated to squashing this movement, travels to Damascus, but as we know, something happens dramatically. His salvation moment happens on the road to Damascus. Jesus saves Paul. His life is turned upside down, or if you like, it's turned right side up. What does Paul do thereafter? Well, he doesn't double back. He actually goes into Damascus, but instead of persecuting Jesus, he proclaims Jesus. What a turn. <coughs> As you can imagine, the leadership in Damascus, the Jewish leadership in Damascus isn't too fired up about what has gone on in Paul's life. And so a plot is hatched. They're going to kill Paul. Paul catches wind of this. He hightails it out of Damascus and he goes to Arabia for three years. What does Paul do in Arabia for three years? He's taught by Jesus. Jesus teaches Paul in Arabia for three years. Years. Now, how Jesus taught Paul in that three-year period, we don't know. We just know what he says in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1. This is a reminder of what you've already seen, but reminders are a good thing. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's taught. This is Paul's season of discipleship. Three-year period. Interesting. Three-year period. Discipleship of Paul. If you've ever wondered, how does Paul write what he does? How does he know what he is talking about? There's your answer. Now, if you read that of Paul and go, what an advantage. Just understand, the revelations given to Paul, we have we have the same revelations. Are there some things that he holds back? Yeah, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he has a third heaven experience. He's not allowed to share it, but to keep him humble because of this heavenly experience, a thorn is given him in the flesh to keep him humble. But we have the revelations that Paul experienced in places like Arabia. After three years, again, I'm trying to make this quick. After a three-year period, Paul goes to Jerusalem for 15 days travels to Jerusalem. You've already read about this in chapter one. He meets with Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus. What a great 15-day period. I can only imagine what they talked about. It would have been so sweet. Like if I, if I could have been there, I would have loved to have been there and just listen to these guys talk about ministry and what Jesus had done and what happened in their life. And they would have prayed together and worshiped together and hung out and debriefed and learned from one another. It would have been a really sweet 15-day period. Paul leaves from Jerusalem, but this time he doubles back and he goes to Tarsus, where he was born, spends about three to four years in Tarsus. What does he do there? I'm sure he did ministry. 
We just don't really know the specifics of what he did. He started making tents, I'm sure. Went to the marketplace, told people about Jesus for three to four years. Barnabas, at this point in time, seeks Paul out, travels to Tarsus because the gospel had, had started making inroads in a city called Antioch and the church was exploding there. And so Barnabas, he goes to Paul and says, Paul, I want you to come to Antioch and I want you to do ministry with me in Antioch. And so Paul does that for a year, teaches the church in Antioch, does the work of evangelist there. This becomes home base. If you want to know what the home base, home church for Paul and Barnabas were, it's Antioch. That's their home church. They, after this year, commission Paul and Barnabas, they send them out to be missionaries. Missionaries going to regions that are predominantly Gentile and go tell people about Jesus, share the gospel with people. And so they do for about a year and a half to two years. This is where the churches in Galatia are planted. Comes back after a year and a half to two out on the field, debrief with the church in Antioch. And then they spend three years there on a furlough, resting, hanging out, doing ministry, serving in the church. And then they get it in their minds. Hey, let's double back and let's go back to the churches that we planted, encourage them, strengthen them, and perhaps do more ministry. And so they do. It's in this period of time, around this moment, we're not sure when, but it's around this moment. And go to verse one of our text. Go to verse one. Have I read our text yet? What am I doing? This is, this is where in our text, we read the following. Take a look at verse one. Then after 14 years, 14 years from what? 14 years, probably after the last time he was in Jerusalem for that 15 day period. We're not sure, but probably that. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. So God told me to go. God told me to go. God told Barnabas to go. And... I went up because of this revelation and set before them, here's the reason why. Though privately before those who seem influential, that's Peter, James, and John, I'll get back to them. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So here's the issue. Paul's probably late 40s now, early 50s. The church has existed in its New Testament format, form, for about 20 to 25 years. That's how far along we are in the story just enough time for the first major issue to arise in the church. In fact, it's two issues for Paul personally. One is the major issue that all, everyone in the church is dealing with, and that is there is this group of people, and you've heard about them already through the teaching of what James has brought in the last couple of weeks. There's this group of people that are called the Judaizers. Who are the Judaizers? These are the people that like Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. The Jesus and people. Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and feast keeping, Jesus and dietary restrictions, and so on. So they're big on Jesus, just Jesus isn't enough. And so what was taking place in this early form of the church is this, this um, bombardment on the gospel. What is the gospel? Is the gospel enough? And so forth. That's one major issue. Tied into that is something, and we won't address this in great detail, but tied into it, people were questioning the apostleship of Paul. Again, you've hit this over the last couple of weeks as well. After all, Paul was not part of the 12. He's, he wasn't with Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. In addition to that, Paul's not much to look at, doesn't speak very well in public, and so on. Right, stuff you read about in 1 Corinthians especially, but 2 Corinthians as well. So two major crises. The first one is most important, although Paul addresses the second. 
And that has to do with this crisis over the gospel. And so God moves in Paul's life, Barnabas's life, after 14 years of his first visit and says, go to Jerusalem. And what takes place in Jerusalem, and you can read about this in Acts 15, is something called the Jerusalem Council, where the leaders in the early church come together to discuss what is the gospel. And that leads us to our text. Let me read the end, and then we'll start going through those three affirmations that I referred to before that Paul makes so so very clear. So pick it up in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. These are these Judaizers who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we, were, that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, that's again, Peter, James, and John, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be the pillars, uh, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. And they did the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So let's unpack this. First affirmation of Paul to remind you, as I mentioned earlier, is the gospel stands on its own. The gospel stands on its own. Now, when I speak of gospel, what am I speaking of? Now, I know most of you know the answer to this question, so I'm not... I'm not asking the question of you primarily. I'm asking perhaps one or two of you that you've come in here and you don't know what I mean by the gospel. You perhaps, perhaps heard the word before, but you don't know what it means. Well, in simple terms, the gospel refers to the good news story of Jesus. So if you're a child here, a kid here, and you're filling in the blanks of the handout, gospel means good news. It's the good news story of Jesus. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, and you can hear the word evangelism in there, evangelistic, evangelical, those types of things. And it simply refers to the giving of the good news of of Jesus. It speaks specifically of what Jesus has done for us. He came into the world, sent in love for us, died for us in our place for our sins on the cross, and he did so necessarily. You see, without Jesus, we live in a perpetual state of bad news because of the nature that we have inherited from our first father, because of our sin, because of our disobedience. But what Jesus did is he brought good news. And the good news of Jesus is that he came and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came and lived a perfect life. He died for us, paying the ransom that hung on us because death is that ransom that needed to be paid because the wages of sin is death. And then after being put in the grave for three days, he rose from death, killing our last enemy death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. That's the gospel in Cole's notes form. Is the gospel more than that? It certainly is, but please hear me. It's nothing less than that either. That's the gospel. And what Paul affirms in our text is that the gospel stands on its own. 
meaning it doesn't need outside affirmation. And it wasn't the creation of a human agency and it's fully sufficient in itself. Paul affirms that as we saw back in verses 11 and 12. This isn't the creation of man. I received it. This is something that flows throughout all of Paul's letters. This idea that he is just passing on what he has received. I'll give you a couple of examples very quickly. He explains it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So I didn't come up with it on my own. I received it. I deliver it, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So the gospel was received and it was delivered. It wasn't conjured up. It wasn't shaped by Paul. It wasn't twisted by Paul. He's just an ambassador of it. A couple, a couple other texts or one more, Jude verse one. This is why Jude writes the following in verse three of his letter. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once, just once, for all, for all, delivered to the saints. Received, delivered. Not the creation of man, given by Jesus himself. Paul says that, like I said, in other places, Jude affirms the same. But when we dive into our text, it's further affirmed there by several things that take place. As mentioned, Paul meets with the early leaders, the pillars of the early church, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem and writes in verse six, just notice how verse six ends. He writes there that he shares the gospel and they added nothing to me. Meaning, the ones you, his recipients of his letters, the ones you so highly esteem, they listened to my unpacking of the gospel and they had nothing to add. This is important for Paul because as I said earlier, he was being questioned. Some were even suggesting that he was reverting back to his former way of life. He says, look, I went there, I shared with them. And they added nothing to me, but further, and this is such a sweet in-your-face picture, further affirming this idea that the gospel stands on its own, it's sufficient, it comes from Jesus, is this case study of Titus. We heard about Titus. Who's Titus? He's an uncircumcised Greek. He's an apprentice of Paul who will later become a pastor on the island of Crete. Paul brings him to Jerusalem. He brings him to a Jerusalem council where you have the Judaizers who are wrestling over this question of the gospel and the unity of the gospel. And here it walks in Paul and he goes, have, have you met Titus? He's uncircumcised, man. Have you met him? Shares with the pillars of the church, right? And what is Paul? Look at verse three. It's so, and this is pure Paul. Verse three, but even Titus, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why not? For the gospel is the power of God, first for the Jew and for the Gentile or Greek. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And if that wasn't enough, so you have Paul saying, look, I want to remind you that I've been given the, the, the gospel. I pass it on. The brothers listen to me. Man, they were fired up. Titus, no big deal, man. The gospel's sufficient. But in addition to that, Peter, James, and John, after listening to Paul, want to partner with him in ministry. 
Verse 9, they extend the right hand of fellowship. They listen to what is happening with Paul and Barnabas and their ministry, and they go, obviously, God has poured out his grace and blessing through you to the Gentiles, because the same thing that is going on with us is going on with them, so let's do this together. You go to predominantly Gentile regions, We'll go to predominantly Jewish regions, but we'll bring the same gospel that was once for all delivered to all people, all saints. That's Paul's first affirmation. The gospel stands on its own. But if true, if true, if the gospel stands on its own and it's sufficient, here's the second affirmation. And if you just remember one affirmation of the three, and I hope you remember all three, I do want you to remember this if you have to pick. Second affirmation, all obstacles in the way of the gospel must be removed. If the gospel stands on its own, as we believe it does, all obstacles in the way of it need to be removed. And one obstacle, and the reason for the Jerusalem council that stands in the way of the gospel is unity over the gospel. It's the first obstacle. Which is, the why, which is why the Lord told Paul to go to Jerusalem. To, to put it another way, just so we don't miss it, unity over the gospel matters to God. It matters to God. And not unity for unity's sake, but unity over the gospel. And Paul gives two primary reasons why this is so, so very important. One is for the sake of the truth of the gospel itself. Just notice verse 5. Paul writes, We did not yield in submission to the Judaizers even for a moment so that the truth or the purity of the gospel might be preserved. I, I, earlier I said, what is the gospel? I gave you that Coles Notes version. I said, is it more than that? It certainly is, but it's nothing less than that either. You probably remember that. Here's the more than that. And this is not, if somebody asks you what the gospel is, this is not a wrong answer. The gospel is Jesus. That's why the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says at the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is a good news story of Jesus. And therefore, when we mess with the gospel, when we water down the gospel, when we add to the gospel, when we take away from the gospel, we're taking away from the glorious, wondrous, amazing work of Jesus. And, and it's sad. It, sometimes... It, motivated out of what we call love when it's no love at all, but it, what it does is it diminishes, it waters it down. It, ma it makes it something less than mind-blowing, the mind-blowing aspect of what it is. So, so Paul says, no, we want to preserve the sweetness of the gospel. But a second reason why this is so important, this unity over the gospel, is because and for the sake of the church. We he says in verse 5, and you can notice how it ends, we seek, seek to preserve the gospel for you. Paul's saying, we don't want to confuse you. We don't want to hinder you. By affirming their teaching, meaning the, meaning the Judaizers, or placating to them. We want to have unity, but unity over the gospel. And not unity just for unity's sake. We want unity over the gospel. This is good leadership. This is a great leadership on Paul's part here and the other cronies with him. This is great. This is hard leadership, though. This is the kind of leadership that can lead to all sorts of things, uncomfortable things. It can lead to 
miscategorization and so forth. This is the kind of leadership that just requires strength and fortitude. But Paul's willing to risk all the dangers that come with this for the sake of those under his care. This is good shepherding. This is great shepherding. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good leadership, man. And so Paul and the rest, in agreement, stating that salvation doesn't rest on the works of the law, but on grace through faith in Jesus, conclude, Titus, you don't need to get circumcised. Gospels, enough. The gospel's sufficient. Know Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. That's their conclusion, right? So problem solved. Right? The people have spoken. It's great, right? No more, put the scalpels away. No more circumcision necessary, right? You always got to throw in one joke about circumcision. No, no circumcision, right? It's awesome, right? Good news, good news. Breathe easy, all you Gentiles. Breathe easy, man. Sort of. I want you to notice something Luke records in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, if you don't know this, follows Acts 15, okay? What happened in Acts 15? Jerusalem Council. What was the conclusion? Circumcision, other customs, not necessary. Jesus is enough. We're saved by Jesus. What takes place in Acts 16? Just notice it. Paul is introduced to a young guy named Timothy. Jewish mom, Greek daddy. Notice what happens. Paul wanted to wanted Timothy to accompany him on this journey that had just started, that it's a missionary journey, the second, second trip, and he took him and circumcised him. What the heck? Like, was Paul, did he miss the meeting? Right, what is, I mean, circumcised him, why? Just notice, why? Because of the Jews. Where's this strong leadership, man? What about Titus? Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. What decisions? Circumcision isn't necessary. Those decisions. Do you hear what's going on? Timothy is circumcised because their audience, at this point at least, is Jewish, predominantly. And so, to not hinder the chance to meet with them, Timothy is circumcised so they can go tell them that circumcision isn't necessary. What? A little bit confused? Well, before we address your confusion, please don't miss the passion of Paul and Timothy and their burden for reaching the lost. There's an obstacle in the way, Timothy. We, we, not, we need to get rid of that obstacle so we can, we can tell people about Jesus. 
to, to be clear, Timothy wasn't circumcised for salvation's sake. He was circumcised for ministry's sake. His, his uncircumcision was an obstacle to the gospel, and so he removed that obstacle. Paul sums up his commitment to obstacle removal this way in 1 Corinthians 9. He writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Paul was a Jew. What he's talking about is placing themselves into their world, putting himself under the law. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, which is love, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all my means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. If you, if you want a life first, grab that one. That's a good one. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. But even in saying that, I, I think I can presume some of the questions that you may have in regards to this. What's the di- Norm, what is the difference between the group of people in Galatians 2 and the group of people in Acts 16? Well, in Galatians 2, gospel purity is at stake. In Acts 16, ministry is at stake. In Galatians 2, they were dealing with a group of Jesus and people. In Acts 16, they were dealing with a a people who had no Jesus. Did I say Acts 16 people or Jesus and people? The Galatians 2 group were changing the gospel. The Acts 16 group hadn't yet heard the gospel. That's the difference. Here's my point. You want to write this down because this is a very, very important point. Probably the most significant thing you've considered all week. There's There's a right time and a wrong time to become circumcised. That's my point. There's a right time and a wrong time to get circumcised, and it depends on what's at stake. Titus wasn't circumcised and Timothy was, and both were the right decisions at the time. Now, I know when I'm talking about circumcision, you're going, what is this place? What is this all? And I, I, and I get it. And, and understand fully that circum, things like circumcision and, and feast keeping and dietary restrictions for religious reasons aren't, a, it's, it's just not an issue for you. But is it possible, let me bring this home for you with a, A question of application. Is it possible that you're raising obstacles in your life that is keeping you from enjoying the freedom that is yours in Christ? What aren't you believing right now that is keeping you from being all Christ has in mind for you? What aren't you believing? What are you raising? What's getting in the way? Any Jesus and in you. And connected to this, are there any obstacles that keep you from having an audience with others? What needs to be removed so you can have that audience? Who are those under the law in your life? The the religious, the legalists, the 
salvation is earned, not given group. What, what do you need to become for a time at least to reach that group? And who are the weak in your life? What do you need to become to reach them? What, what obstacles stand in the way of you becoming all things to all people so that by all means some might be saved for Jesus? Do you, do you see how this is for us? We have all sorts of obstacles. We have other obstacles that keep us from winning others. What are some of them? Prayerlessness is an obstacle. Because the fact of the matter is, some people don't come to Jesus. In fact, I would say the majority of people don't come to Jesus unless people are praying and fasting for them. So prayerlessness, that's an obstacle. Busyness is an obstacle. We just don't have time for the lost. And I say this with eight fingers and two thumbs pointing at me. Busyness gets in the way of the gospel and the proclamation of it. What else? Burdenlessness. Quite frankly, we just don't have a, a lot of passion for the lost. Those are obstacles. They need to be removed. Obstacles in our own life, keeping us from what God has for us, and obstacles that we've created, put in the way, that keep us from sharing Jesus with others. So what are they? I'll ask once again, what are, what are they? I remember D.A. Carson saying that he's a teetotaler in North America, but loves wine while traveling in Europe. It was his way of saying that he understood his audience in both places. He wasn't going to raise this up in North America, getting in the way of having an opportunity of speaking in people's lives. A, a group of perhaps Jesus and people that I'm sure he butts up against all the time in his world. He said, like, I understand the difference. And I'm not being a hypocrite in Europe. For the sake of the gospel, I'm doing this in North America. I also remember a pastor mentor of mine being invited by a non-believer to meet, a, meet a, a, an individual he knew at a bar to talk about Jesus and my mentor refusing for fear that he would be seen by someone from the church. So this guy wanted to meet with my pastor mentor friend, talk about Jesus. He wasn't a believer. He says, you know, I hang out at this one bar. Why don't we come meet there? He says, no, I, I, there's a chance somebody in the church could see me. And I shared as gently as I could in, in my youth, you've got to get rid of that obstacle, man. You've, you've got to stop living your life in fear of what others may say, say of you. You've got to be willing to be considered a glutton and a drunkard if it's going to lead you to people that you have a chance to share Jesus with. Stop pleasing man. And be a minister of the gospel regardless of where it takes you. So the gospel stands on its own. All, all, all obstacles in the way of the gospel must be removed. And finally, the gospel makes a difference. The gospel makes a difference. I want you to notice as, as we begin wrapping up how our text ends. I know I read it. Let me read it one more time. Paul, Paul concludes in verse 10 by writing, Only they, Peter, James, and John, asked us, Barnabas and Titus, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I love this. And here's why. 
what could be viewed as a seemingly inconsequential verse, especially in comparison to the nine verses that precede it, um, is, is so important, this verse. This is why I love it. Without it, and the reason why I love it is because without it, we could possibly conclude that what matters most to Paul and the rest is, is right doctrine. Now, it, it, is right doctrine important? Sure, church. Is right doctrine important? It's so important that God moved in Paul's life and said, go to Jerusalem and have a council over doctrine and have unity over doctrine. Agree. It's so important. Why is it important? Because there's no other gospel. And so people's very salvation is at stake. And so if you're changing the gospel and you're sharing that gospel and you say, that's how God saves you and they walk away going, fantastic, I'm saved. When they're not, shame on you. And Paul says, no, it's vital. It's so vital. And we did this and we met and we concluded and we got people's face over it. It's so important, but it's not the end game. Right doctrine isn't the end game. Theological astuteness is not the end game. Gospel unity is crucial, but it's not the goal. What gospel unity is meant to produce is the goal. A couple of verses to notice as I put a bow on this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Verses 16 and 17, again, Paul the writer writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Love that. I love that. But notice what he goes on to say. To what end, Paul, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped, for what? For every good work. Like taking care of the poor for example. That's the end game. One more verse. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's good doctrine. That's right doctrine. But then notice what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. That's the goal which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just for those of you who know the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 includes this verse where, where the writer of Hebrews says, I do not want you to neglect meeting together as some are doing. But have you ever noticed to what end? Why are they to meet together? Not neglect the coming together? Well, in verse 24 of Hebrews 10, he writes to consider how to stir one another up for love and good works. That's the goal. As many have said before me, we are not saved by good works. That's the gospel. That's certain. But just as certain is the reality that we are saved unto good works. Not saved by, but unto. And necessarily so. Why? Because knowledge by itself puffs up. If you don't have verse 10, you get arrogant. It's a given. 
And to borrow from one that I was just listening to yesterday, love by very definition is the call to self-empty, which is the call of the Christian life. We are not to be puffed up because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who extend what they have heard to others motivated by love. My time is done. I'll close this way. There's a book, has a very long title, written by Larry Hurtado. The title is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's a long title. He gives four reasons why. So why did the church explode? Reason number one is that Christians forbade both abortion in its very archaic, harsh, antiquated way and the practice of infant exposure. That was really their way of abortion back in those days. Um, they would take babies they didn't want, they would take them to the dump and they would leave them there. And what the early church did is they went and they retrieved the babies and they raised them. And this stood out to the world around them. That's one reason. A second, Christians were also a sexual counterculture in that they abstained from any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. This was, and you'll hear so many lies today about our world and how different it was. If you know anything about the Roman world in the first century, it wasn't conservative. This was in the midst of a society that thought that especially for married men, sex with prostitutes, slaves, and children was perfectly fine. A third reason why. Christians believed in non-retaliation, in forgiving their enemies, even those who were killing them. And here's the fourth reason why. Christians were, un, were also unusually generous with their money, particularly to the poor and needy, and not just to their own family and racial groups, since their common identity in Christ was more fundamental than their racial identities. The result? The church grew. It exploded. Do you, do you know why works like that are so effective? Because any work that looks like God is going to be blessed by the God it looks like. That's why. Because the gospel is to make a difference. It stands on its own. Remove obstacles in the way of it leading us to the end goal, it makes a difference. It shows our gratitude. It shows our recognition of what Jesus did for us. And God blesses that. Let me pray. And, and so, Father, I, I double back to the prayer that we looked at on the front end. We've heard from you by way of your word and now as we respond and then we leave from this place and scatter into the highways and byways that you've placed us. Oh God, may we be good soil. May we be obedient. May we present our bodies as living sacrifices. May, if you're calling us away from something to remove something today, then I pray that we would. If there's something that needs to be added today, then I, I pray that we would. For the sake of the places that you've put us, for the sake of our own walk with you, May we, may we um, 
May we be obedient to the, to the word that you've given us. We love you, Jesus. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for sending your spirit. And thank you for speaking and meeting with us here today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Would you rise, please?